Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm thankful that you could join us this Lord's Day morning. I hope that you all had a great week. I want to say up front, thank you for your prayers this week. I have been comforted to know that many of you have been praying for my health. Second um, Corinthians 1.3, I mentioned it in the prayer, says that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Even more amazing, here's what's, here's what's interesting about that passage. We comfort others with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So in the Spirit, when we are comforted by God, in the Spirit, when we uh, experience affliction, we are then able to use that, that time in order to encourage others. I am absolutely convinced that God puts us through trials and afflictions to make us more useful. Make us more useful. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to be comforted, to be comforted by God through all of you. And so I'm thankful for your many prayers this week as I've been working through this week trying to get better. Now, what's interesting is at the same time, at the same time, I am working hard on my health and trying to see if I can get stronger. So be, please continue to pray in that way, but continue to pray that I would have the right attitude in that, in that situation. Well, today we're con- continuing our series called Family Matters. We've made our way all the way to Ephesians chapter 6. We started in verse 1 of chapter 1 quite a few months ago, and now we've made it to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. Now as I think about the church, I firmly believe that we should see diversity of life in the body of Christ. Let me tell you what I mean. The true church is made up of saints from all walks and stages of life. As such, there are younger and older saints all joined together by the Holy Spirit. According to Ephesians 2.21, we are being fitted together and growing into a holy temple into the Lord, under the Lord. I like to think of it this way. Our hearts are being knitted together in love by the Holy Spirit. I believe that a healthy church will be made up of people living normal lives together. Let me say, this, say it this way. In a flourishing body, we should see weddings, we should see the birth of children. We should see the growth of children. We should see the salvation of our youth. We should see and witness the sending of young adults. Then we should see more weddings, more children, more youth. And oh, by the way, a few funerals thrown in as we go along. That's, the, that's what life is all about. And that's the flourishing of a flourishing church sees all these things. And amid all this, discipleship relationships are being built among God's people and each are being equipped to evangelize the lost. And as such, we make disciples and see them come to maturity in Christ. And as they become mature disciples, we will see them serve the body of Christ and the cycle begins anew. When the church becomes mature enough, we pray for the means to plant other churches where that cycle can also begin. Now, the church of Jesus Christ, as such, the church of Jesus Christ should be a living, breathing, and growing organism. 
We don't need to. Let me just say this. We don't need to focus on numerical growth. That will come if we are committed to a biblical philosophy of ministry. We know the church will grow in maturity and in number as we focus on the biblical priorities of caring for each saint. You see, it is God who causes the growth of the body. In writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul understood this idea. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, as I said earlier, we have made our way to Ephesians chapter 6 today, and I, I believe that all these things, I believe that all these things come from cultivating strong families where the men are loving their families and the women are submitting to their husbands in a way that honors our Lord. Churches flourish when we are full of families that are devoted to one another in Christ and to Christ. I think that's the way Paul, that's, that's why Paul, that is, spends the time he does to address this issue in the church. We shouldn't lose sight of the, the flow of the letter of, uh, to Ephesus. His desire was for the church to flourish for the purpose of spreading the gospel and planting other churches throughout his known world. Now, he wants and understands that in order for the church to be strong, there must be strong marriages and families. Now, we spent the past six weeks looking at the marriage relationship. We took three sermons to carefully ex examine the role of the wives and another three sermons to work through the role of the husbands. Now, I pray and have been praying that the Holy Spirit will use those sermons to enrich your marriages as you seek to please Him. But now we've arrived at Ephesians 6, 1-4, where Paul will address the children of the church. Now, let me say this carefully. I believe, I fully believe, that children are the most important ministry in the church. Now, I want to be careful here. Sadly, the world is winning our children. The current brand of evangelical Christianity is too weak and too watered down to win that battle. Now, today, I want to set up the, the challenges facing our children and begin to give some general background for the Bible's teaching concerning children. And then over the ensuing weeks, we will look to God's Word regarding how this problem must be solved. Now, as I said, I do believe that children are our most important ministry. But let me say this as we get started. Parents, especially fathers, parents, especially fathers, are the key to children's ministry. If we want the children to flourish in the church, if we want them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, then we will focus on discipling their parents, especially their fathers. We'll see this truth emerge in the first four chapters, or first four verses of chapter 6. Now, as I've said, I, we're going to spend the next few weeks working through this section. Since it's such a crucial topic, we will work slowly and see what the Bible has to say regarding children. Let me tell you up front right now that we're not going to make it to our outline. This is the message that God has laid on my heart. So I hope this morning that to convince you of two things. We will lose our children if we don't act. And our children are 
important to our Lord. So two things. We will lose our children if we don't act. Two, we, our children are important to our Lord. Let me read Ephesians 6, verses 1-4. through says, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning again. Praise you for this time. May this time be fruitful. May you give me clarity of mind, clarity of heart, so that I could communicate clearly the message that you've laid on my heart. In Christ's name, amen. We've all seen the pictures of starving children. Historically, hunger has been one of the greatest threats to the youth of our world. Even today, in developing countries, malnutrition is a leading cause of death for children. Approximately 3.1 million children die of hunger each year. And in 2011, poor nutrition accounted for 45% of deaths for children under 5. 40% of preschool-age children are estimated to be anemic because of iron deficiency. Anemia causes 20% of all maternal deaths. In addition, it is estimated that 250,000 to 500,000 children will go blind from a lack of vitamin A every year. Now, I am thankful that great strides have been made toward the reduction of world hunger. The Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations estimates that the total number of hungry people worldwide has been reduced by 216 million since 1992. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., we have some children who face hunger, though not at the level experienced in other countries. According to statistics, 13 million, one in six, may experience what's called food insecurity in 2021. Food insecurity is defined as households that don't have enough food for every member to lead a healthy life. Ultimately, deprivation is the only reason for starvation in this rich country. You see, we actually have the opposite problem in in our country. We are too affluent. For children and adolescents aged 2 to 19 in 2017 to 2018, 14.4 million children and adolescents were obese which is defined as a BMI in the 95th percentile. That amounts to 13.4% among 2 to 5-year-olds, 20% among 6 to 11-year-olds, and 21.2% among 16 to 19-year-olds. As crazy as it sounds, socioeconomic status has an inverse effect on obesity. 18.9% of the children were obese in the lowest income group, with 19.9 in the middle-income group. That percentage drops to 10.9 among those in the highest income. Now, I didn't come here to teach you about statistics on obesity or on starvation, although those things should be important to us. As as, As critical as this problem is, it points to an even greater issue among our children and youth. The average 
13 to 18-year-old spends 96 minutes per day playing video games. That's 11.2 hours per week. That's 616 per year. That's over 8,000 hours before graduating high school. And that's assuming they start playing when they're five years old. Uh, in 2013 to 2017, U.S. citizens ages, ages 15 and older spent an average of two hours and 46 minutes per day watching television. That's 18.4 hours per week or 957 hours, I'm sorry, 18.4 hours a day, uh, a week, or 957 hours per, per year. I think that's right. Or that, yes, that is correct. That's 16,300 hours before graduating high school. This, amount, this amounts to more than half, 55.2% of the total time per day they spent spend in leisure and sports activities they spend in front of a screen. This includes spending time watching live programming, DVDs, streaming, and computers and portable devices. It doesn't include time spent viewing movies at a theater. Now, if you add those two statistics up, our children are averaging 29.6 hours per week playing games or watching TV or movies. That's almost 25,000 hours of screen time before they leave your home. That's on average. Obviously, spending so much time in front of screen is one explanation for the obesity that we're seeing. As critical as this issue is, so we've talked about obesity, then we've talked about screen time. As critical as that issue is, there's even a more crucial problem facing our children. According to modern science taught in our public schools, Earth was formed 4.6 billion years ago. Debris from this explosion began to collapse itself due to gravity forming the sun. Gravity continued to draw the remaining particles together, clumping them into larger bodies, ultimately forming the Earth and other planets in our solar system. I say all that to tell you that they teach that the Earth and the moon formed through a process called Thea, which is the name of a Greek goddess who was the mother of the moon goddess Selene. After this time, earth entered the Hadean eon, in which the earth and the moon were a molten ball of lava and magma that couldn't sustain life. As the earth cooled, life in its simplest form came forth through random processes 3.8 to 4 billion years ago during the beginning of the Ark eon. Now this name is based on the Greek word translated ark, which means beginning or origin. Hadean is based on the word Hades, because Hades being hell, so it was a molten, basically molten ball of magma, which is likened to hell, or Hades. Now, we shouldn't miss the significance of using these Greek names to describe these events. It's, this word ark is actually the same word used in Genesis 1-1 and the Greek Sept, Septuagint, meaning in the beginning, in the beginning, the, the, the ark uh, is, is the word for beginning. Obviously, this true truth is being taught in the school as diametrically opposed to God's word in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Now, here's the upshot. Kids are being taught that life is random chance. Therefore, there is no transcendent meaning to life. Even if you believe these theories, and I hope you don't, but even if you do, you should be able to see the difference in outcomes between teaching our children that they are made in the image of God, 
Therefore, they have infinite worth because they're made in the image of God versus we came from a single-cell organism that somehow dragged itself up out of pond scum eons ago. Public school children are being exposed to this ideology for an average of 6.64 hours per day, 180 days out of the year. That's an average of 23 hours per week over the entire year. If you add television and video games, that's a total of 52.6 hours of indoctrination per week. That's 32% of their week. And if they sleep 10 hours a day, that's another 70%. That leaves 37.4 hours of their week for other activities with much of this time taken by sports, music, and other organizations. Now, I'm not against those things, but... I just want you to understand that out of 168 hours, you don't have very many with your kids. And it's getting worse. President Joe Biden said the following in his 2021 State of the Union address. When this nation made 12 years of public education, he should have said public indoctrination, universal in the last century, it made us the best educated and best prepared nation in the world. But the world is catching up. They're not waiting 12 years is no longer enough today to compete in the 21st century. Here's what he said. That's why the American Families Plan guarantees four additional years of public education for every person in America starting as early as we can. We add two years of universal high-quality preschool for every three- to four-year-old in America. The research shows that when a young child goes to school, not daycare, they are far more likely to graduate from high school and go on to college. And then we add two years of free community college. That's end quote. That's what he said in his State of the Union address just a few months ago. Currently, currently a student will spend 15,400 hours of classroom time to receive a high school diploma and an additional 2,000 hours to receive a bachelor's degree, and that doesn't count study and homework time. Under Biden's plan, publicly educated children will spend at least two more years if they are even able to, or if they're able to opt out of the additional time to receive an associate's degree. Here's, again, here's the upshot. This means that your child, if you send them through the public school uh, arena, your child will have even more exposure to these dangerous ideologies than ever before. I can guarantee you this isn't because they want a, a better nation so much as they want to indoctrinate your children. I, I, I want to stop and just say that Christians need to get serious about providing viable opportunities or viable options to or viable options to this type of indoctrination if you choose to send your children to the public schools or universities you've been warned about what they will face on the other hand if you're involved if you're not involved that is with homeschooling or christian private education i urge you to consider to do so it's important my prayer, actually, is that our church can one day support homeschooling and even support a Christian school. I've, that's a, I've com completely changed on that because it's so important that we educate our children with a Christian education. Now, I realize that most of you are committed to home or private schools even now, but many of you are contemplating sending your, your kids to public universities. 
And if you choose to do so, you have to recognize the desire to indoctrinate them. Yet, as critical as these issues are, there is an even more fundamental problem facing our children. It's the home. It's the lack of parental involvement, especially the father's. According to a secular organization called the National Fatherhood Initiative, there is a father absence crisis in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 18.3 million children, one in four, one in four live without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. Consequently, there is a father factor in nearly all social ills facing America. This is according to this secular organization. According to this organization, research shows that when a child is raised in a father-absent home, he or she is affected in the following ways. They are four times greater, at a greater, four times greater risk of poverty. Uh, They have much more likely, they're much more likely to have behavioral problems. They're two times greater risk of infant mortality. They're much more likely to commit a crime and go to prison. They're seven times, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. Much more, they're much more likely to face abuse and neglect. They're, they're likely to abuse and, uh, drugs and alcohol. And twice as likely to be obese. And twice as likely to drop out of high school. 90% of young men, now I, I couldn't, this, this is astounding. 90% of young men in U.S. prisons grew up without a father. After the Tottenham riots in the United Kingdom in 2011, a follow-up survey was performed on the 1,000-plus rioters. It turned out that 85% of them had grown up without a father. At that time, Prime Minister David Cameron drew a direct line from the absence of fathers in in the home to the chaos on the streets. Not that that was the only factor, but it was certainly a key factor. This, again, is according to this secular source. Even Barack Obama has stated, children who grew up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime and nine times more likely to drop out of school and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems and, or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundations, listen to this, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. That's Barack Obama. According to Maria Calvo, growing up without a father is more detrimental than growing up poor. The absence of a father figure is at the root of most social problems. Violence, drug abuse, pre-adolescent pregnancy, academic failure, running away from home. Before it was thought that poverty was the cause, but no, it is the absence of a father. She goes on to say, especially between the ages of three to five, young boys need the presence of their father as a model of masculinity. Again, church, these are secular sources. According to one article... When a masculine role model is missing, young boys can grow up guided by stereotypes that orient them towards violence and male chauvinistic behaviors. They can also fall prey to to a negative view of life. The nihilist philosophers, Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell, and Albert Camus, I I don't think I... Albert, Albert Camus, grew up without a father. I'm not French. Where's... Where's... uh, Where's... uh, Oh, there's... 
There's Lisa. I was going to ask where Emily's at. In the, in the case of Camus, Professor Calvo explains that the French author had written a few lines in the, in the margin of a manuscript. Listen to this. This is this, this French author. I need someone to guide me. I need someone to praise me, to chastise me, not with his power, but with his authority. I need my father. The article continues. Calvo says that in raising children, the father compensates for the maternal desire to give their children everything. The father is also often the one who establishes the children's sense of hierarchy, primarily that of that of the authority of parents with respect to the children, but also that of teachers, police, and authorities in general. At the same time, fathers represent freedom because they push children beyond the boundaries allowed by their sometimes, many times, overprotective mothers. End quote. I think you get the picture. Even secular psychologists recognize that children cannot flourish without parental involvement. Let me give you one other statistic that will give you some indication of the lack of parental involvement. A national survey has revealed that nearly half of American families eat dinner together fewer than three times a week, or not at all. I'm a, personally a big proponent of eating dinner, the dinner meal together as a family. The authors of the book, The, the Hour That Matters Most, state, study after study shows that the more often families eat together, the less likely the kids are to smoke, to drink, to do drugs, to get depressed, to develop eating disorders, become overweight, and consider suicide. Now, as you know, it is difficult to make that happen. We all have busy schedules, which lead to cranky kids and exhaustion, so we decide to grab our food and head to the living room to flip on what? Television. Therefore, Many families forego this incredibly crucial time. By the way, I am convinced that dinner, the dinner meal is crucial for your family. Let me just give you a few ways you're losing out by foregoing this time. Family mealtimes encourage conversations and relationships. They encourage prayer. They encourage thankfulness as we recognize that God provides all that we have. And they give us an opportunity for worship and for theological discussions. But many of us are missing out on these opportunities by opting to sit in front of the television or even worse, retreating to our phones. As critical as this problem is, there is even a bigger problem. And there's even a bigger problem. In 1970, or 1936, 76% of all Americans were members of a church. The percentage stayed around 79 until the early 2000s when it began to drop sharp, sharply. By 2018, it went down to 50%. And 2020, it plunged to 47%. According to a Gallup poll, 21% of Americans don't identify with any religion. The, the response to COVID-19 has made this problem even worse, has it not? I would venture to say that a large number, a large percentage of regular churchgoers stopped physically attending church due to COVID re re restrictions imposed by the government. According to the Gospel Coalition, of the churches meeting in person, a third of the pastors say they're averaging only 50% of their attendance a year before. Praise the Lord, that's not true of this church. 
Another third say that their attendance is at least 70% of what it was in January 2020. Within that number, only 8% of pastors say they are 90% or above their attendance from the first month of 2020. In short, for the vast majority of churches in the United States, and in-person in-person gatherings have resumed, but the number of attendees is significantly lower. Now, here's the takeaway. Fewer folks are making the local church central to their lives. Even regular attendance in church is not enough to offset the onslaught that your family is facing. Our children need family time, and they need to see us regularly gathering with the saints for worship and fellowship. Now, in the face of these dire circumstances, the attack on the true gospel is at a fever pitch. More and more Christians are confused by the nature of what salvation is. Many churches are teaching the gospel of critical race theory, which is no gospel at all. They're peddling a form of the gospel that doesn't include reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is the good news that through the finished work of Christ, we can be reconciled to a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and at the cross, we are reconciled to God, and by implication, we are reconciled to one another. It's the message of the gospel that we can be forgiven forgiven by God for our sins against Him, and His forgiveness leads us to forgive others of wrongs. Let Let me round that out for you. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this world's only hope. Yet those who should be preaching the true gospel are trading it for a message which divides. And history tells us that this will result in dying churches because Christ will not give life, <coughs> will not give his life to churches that fail to preach the word of the cross. Let me put it together with the children. Your children need to hear the soul-saving message of the cross. So let's put this ugly picture together. Our children are spending more and more time in front of some type of screen. They are receiving hours and hours of teaching from Hollywood elites who are bent on a worldview that is anti-God. We are also sending our children to government schools that teach them that there is no God and that we are here by random chance. They teach that life is meaningless and that morality is subjective. To make matters worse, the family structure continues to break down in our culture. Men are fathering children without marrying the mother. Even when they marry, their commitment level is incredibly low. For many, it's a job. They spend as much time in a boardroom as as they do in the kid's bedroom. Actually, more time in a boardroom than they do in the kid's bedroom. For others, it's a hobby. They spend more of their Saturdays on the lake fishing than they do playing catch with their sons. In our current culture, our children don't stand a chance. And if you're going to go fishing, take your son, by the way, and your daughter. In a current culture, our children don't stand a chance unless we give them the means to fight the spiritual battle that's being waged against them. I can't emphasize the seriousness of this enough. That's why I'm spending so much time working through these things. If the culture wins our children, then we're doomed as a culture. But truthfully, I'm not concerned about the culture. I'm concerned about my family. I'm concerned about our families. 
I'm concerned about the church, the families of this church. This is where the battle is being waged. Now, I've said a lot about the external nature of the battle. I should briefly address the internal battle. Your children have, I I need to break it to you, your children are sinners. Many people believe that little Jimmy and little Patty are perfect. I don't mean to break your bubble, but inside that adorable little baby that's laying in the crib that you just brought home from the hospital lurks murderous sin. They are cursed on arrival. They are little selfish, self-centered, rebellious sinners. In the words of John MacArthur, your baby is cute and cuddly, but reprobate. That is apparent when they arrive. They are preoccupied with themselves. They're great at disobedience. It is built in. Now, you may think that's harsh, but it's the truth. That's what the Bible says. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful, or more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, except for little Jimmy and little Patty, right? They're not, they're not that surely that skipped over them. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This does not mean that David's mother was in sin at at his conception. It means that he was sinful from his very conception. All babies inherit the sin of Adam from conception. What's more is, the last time I checked, there's no training in the womb. So when your sweet baby is born, I know some, maybe a few of you that that are looking to be pregnant, and maybe some that are. I'm praying for a, a... uh, an influx of babies, by the way. <laughs> I, I really am. But when, you're, when your sweet baby is born, he or she is primed and ready to sin. As little Jimmy grows into a toddler, his sin continues to make itself known through his behavior. And if little Patty is left uncorrected as she grows, her behavior continues to reflect the sin in her heart. By the time Jimmy and Patty are School age, they will be little monsters if left uncorrected. In their teen years, they'll be uncontrollable. I wince. I wince when I see a child use curse words. And the parents just laugh it off saying, oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. When they, when they sin, that's so cute. That cuteness will turn into great ugliness as they grow. It does turn into great ugliness as they grow. MacArthur goes on to say, you don't have to teach them disobedience. It's already there. You don't spend the early childhood, their early childhood saying to them, yes, why yes? Well, yes, yes, yes. No, you continually say no, no, no. And hopefully you're slapping that little hand, no, and teaching them the boundaries. This quote reminds me of basketball player Dwayne Wade. His 12-year-old son, Zion, came to him and said, I want to live my truth. I want you to call me Zaya and be referenced as she and her. 12 years old. Their answer should have been no. Absolutely not. But Wade and his wife said yes. And believe it or not, there are actually some states that it would be unlawful for him to say no 
after the age of 13. I think California is that way, Oregon is that way, and I think Washington is that way. And maybe others. MacArthur goes on. Because all the bent is toward what is counterproductive and disobedient, they're good at disobedience. You don't have to teach them how to disobey. Nobody had to teach a child how to disobey. You see, they have to be taught to obey. They got the disobedience part down really well. You see, they're selfish and they want what they want whenever they want it. They don't want to wait for anything. They're impatient. They have no regard for anything but themselves. You've heard this phrase, the whole world does what? The whole world revolves around them. So they have to be taught to obey through painful lessons. And friends, these painful lessons, they will come from you or they will come from the world. In America, we love to build prisons to house those who choose not to teach their kids, to house those kids whose parents chose not to teach them. We love it. We love building bigger prisons. Even secular psychologists recognize that children need correction. In Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, he says, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Think about that. Peterson believes that, ch- that parents are actually the proxy for the rest of society. If your children are doing things that make you dislike them, you can rest assured that others will dislike them more. In his estimation, children are not, who are not given boundaries will be rejected by society very early on. Think about the kid that doesn't have boundaries. Nobody wants to be around them. Not even the other kids, right? They end up being... The outcast. And if you don't teach them the rules of society, if you don't punish them, this is according to Jordan Peterson, society will do it for you. He's right. And we shouldn't need a secular psychologist to tell us what God's Word teaches, should we? Now, I would argue that Paul, the apostle, describes our culture in 2 Timothy 3. You can turn there if you'd like. Three one, Paul writes, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, I don't know if we're in the last of the last days, but I do know what Paul describes here is a good, a very good description of American society. He says this, verse 2, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, arrogant, revilers. Now, it doesn't take much to see, clearly see, all these things around us. People loving money, uh, loving self, the, the boastfulness of, of folks. I mean, just look at social media, you see it all the time. The arrogance, the, the revilers that are reviling God. Every day we witness men and women living for themselves. Our society is greatly materialistic. The advent of social media seems to be accelerating this process. Reality shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians are the most popular shows on television. This is the stuff that your children are exposed to every day. Paul goes on to say that they will be disobedient to parents. 
disobedient parents, ungrateful, unholy. One of the characteristics of of the last days is a general is a general disobedience and defiance, especially toward parents. Our culture teaches them. Again, going back to all that time on the screen and all that time on te- watching television and the time in, in, in a public school, they, they, spend a, they, they teach them they teach them to rebel against authority. You see, if we came here from random chance, who is our authority? What does authority even mean? So it, it shouldn't surprise us that right now they're trying to defund the police. They spend, when they spend countless hours consuming television, movies, and games, YouTube videos, and social media, you can expect your children's behavior to reflect these things. Their behavior, because they are sinful, so when these things interact uh, with your children, and when, you, when, they, when your sinning child interacts with these things, their behavior will become the same as what they're seeing on the screen. They will become unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's That's the frightful expectation. That's the frightful expectation. That is, unless you step in and change their direction. That's the point. Turn to Exodus 12. Let me set the scene. This is just before God sent the final plague against the Egyptians. Look at verse 14. Before... Before sending the plague, he instituted a memorial to be celebrated as a feast to the Lord throughout their generations. In verses 15 through 21, Moses explains the particulars of the feast. In verse 21 and 22, Moses told the elders of the land to slay the Passover lamb and apply the blood to the lentil and to the doorpost. Let me read starting in verse 22. Now remember, this is a memorial. This is a memorial. This is to, to remember. And look at, look at, starting in verse 22. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and pl- apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the, to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside of this door, of the door of his house, until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to build or to your houses to smite you. Now look at verse 24. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children, notice your children, forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, You shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, What does this rite mean to you? You shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. 
Stop right there. So the Lord instituted the Passover ordinance as a reminder to the people. It also serves as an opportunity to teach the children what the Lord did in passing over the sons of Israel when He delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now clearly, this is how important your children are to the Lord. He expects you to teach them, to teach them about God, he expect, he expect, about Him. He expects the parents to teach their children about the Lord, about the Lord Jesus Christ. We see something similar in Deuteronomy 6.4. Turn there if you'd like. This is the great Shema. Just listen to the words of Moses to the people as they're entering the land. And just consider, all I want you to do right now is just consider the importance of teaching your children the ordinances of the Lord. 6-4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words I am commanding you today shall be on your hearts. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Brothers and sisters, this is God's heart for your family and for your children. The world As I've shown, I hope you realize, and as I hope I've proven to you, if you didn't already know, the world is absolutely relentless in its attempt to steal your kids' hearts and your kids' minds. And ultimately, ultimately they want their souls. You, fathers, can defend your children by teaching them God's Word and by modeling the Christian life to them every day, whether you're in the home or driving down the road, when you sit down for dinner or spend other time with them, you need to be intentional to teach them the gospel and show them what it means to follow Christ. And if you're like me, if you're like me, you've failed at times. But God is, a great, God is full of grace and mercy. He's full of grace and mercy. If you failed, look at your children and tell them, I failed. I want to do better. I want to trust the Lord. I want to teach you about who God is because you are facing... Oh, I just can't imagine. Listen to... Again, to the words of Moses in verse 10. 
Then it shall come about when, you're, when the Lord your God brings you, out, brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which he, you did not build, and houses, full of all, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which, cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and, and you eat and are satisfied. Verse 12. Then watch yourself. that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. If you know anything about the history of Israel, what happened? Go through Judges, what happened? Did they follow this? Did they teach their children to follow God? No. No, by the time you get to the end of Judges, the sin is stacked upon itself. It's horrifying. Well, as I said, we wouldn't make it we didn't make it to Ephesians six one. Well actually we did kind of preach the first word, children. But I really felt like we needed felt that we needed to take the time to look at these things. You see, our children and our grandchildren face great trouble. It seems to me that this world is proceeding from bad to worse. And we need to give them the only answer there is. Jesus said in John uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Church, we need Jesus. Your children need Jesus. We don't need what the world has to give. We need the Word of Christ. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, let the Word of Christ richly dwell among you or within you. Spurgeon says this, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the Word of the Lord, not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. End quote. Oh, that you and I would consume the Word of Christ. So that we would bleed the Bible. So that the very essence of the Word would flow out of us into the minds and hearts of our children. I know that not all of you have children. But I can promise you that you can still make a difference. You never know when just one word will reach their very souls. Again, Spurgeon offers his wisdom. You may speak but a word to a child. And in that child, there may be slumbering a a noble heart which shall stir the Christian church in the years to come. Brethren, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And understand that your ministry of the gospel starts in your home with your children. Preach the foolishness of the cross to them. Explain to them what it means to be made in the image of God. Oh Lord, please explain to them that, that. Teach them that they're accountable to Him. Show them their sin. Tell them they have a great Savior, Jesus Christ. Instruct them in His ways. Show them from the Word of God that Christ died to redeem His people. That we can have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. That we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is God's gift to us. Beloved, that's God's heart for your children. 
Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray, we pray, Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we, as a church, humbly come to you. You are our only hope. You are the hope of our families. You are the hope of our children. Father, I pray, we pray that that the fruit of this series would be shown in this church among your people, that wives would lovingly submit to their husbands, that husbands would, would love their wives and they would teach them, washing them in the Word. Lord, and that children would obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right that we would see great blessing. So simple, so simple yet profound. The world is wondering why it's all falling apart. Our culture spirals. And yet, you've given the profound answer right here in Scripture. Just in these few verses. So much wisdom, so much truth packed into a few verses. As a church, I pray, I beg you, Lord, that you, that you would bear fruit in the lives of this body as we follow you, as we trust you, as we trust your word. In Christ's name.